You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody. Welcome back, of course, online and in the room. One thing real quick, because it is the month of May, it is AAPI month, Asian American Pacific Islander month. And so I just want to take a moment to lead pastor to acknowledge and thank all of our Asian American Pacific Islanders here at Mosaic Church for all of your love, all of your support, all your sacrifice, your contributions, co-laboring in the gospel, and best of all, your friendship in my life and in the life of this church. You make me and us so much better. We are thankful for you. So can we give a round of applause? Thankful for you. Yeah. Good. Scripture reading today is going to be from Psalm chapter 73. Psalm 73, it'll be on the screen. Here we go. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Who am I? Who have I in heaven but you? And earth is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the reading of God's word, all his people said. Amen, yeah. Uh, back in January of this year, 2022, on New Atlas, it's a science and technology news site, New Atlas, there was this article posted with this headline, and for obvious reasons, it caught my eye. It said this, it's called, Losing My Religion, The Pandemic is Causing Many to Lose Faith in God. And it was based on a German study which found this. It said, quote, the researchers found the longer the pandemic went on, the more people were losing their faith in God or a higher power. In June 2020, at the beginning of the study, only 3% of survey respondents indicated they had lost faith in a higher power due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Across six more surveys over the next 18 months, this percentage consistently increased until the final survey conducted between August and November 2021 found 21.5% of people reporting a loss of faith due to the pandemic. And what they found was, what they reported was this, that the more difficult things got, the more people doubted God. The longer people suffered, the less They believed. Now, what do we do with this? Like, how do we process this? What should we think about this? Well, first things first, sort of as the title indicates, if this has been you, if you feel like this has been you, you should know that you're not alone in this for two reasons. First of all, because like the survey said, there's a lot of people feeling the same way. But second, if this is you, you should also know that you're not alone 
Because the writers of the Bible felt that way as well. And there's no better place to look at this connection, the connection between difficulty that happens to us and the doubt it creates in us than right here in Psalm 73, a psalm which is written by an ancient Jewish worship leader. His name was Asaph. What was his conclusion about doubt? We're going to look at it in depth today. His conclusion, by the way, this is something only the Bible can give you, the Christian faith can give you, which is this. That doubt is neither all good nor all bad, but doubt is something, if we're honest with it and honest about it, it's something through which we can make spiritual progress. Read that again. Doubt is neither all good nor all bad, but it's something, if we're honest with it, if we're honest about it, it's something through which we can make spiritual progress. We can grow. What do I mean by this? Well, let's look, explore this connection between the difficulty that happens and the doubt it creates in three parts today. We're going to look at, first of all, who doubts. Second, why we doubt. Why do people doubt? And number three, what can actually help us in our doubts? Who doubts, why we doubt, what can help us in our doubts? Let's go number one and take a look, first of all, and see who doubts, what kind of person doubts. Let's start here in verse one, Psalm 73. It's written here, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Who is writing this? This is a believer in God, we know. This is someone who is expressing here. Orthodox, traditional, sort of confident faith in God and who we read later had done his level set best to honor God, live for God first, and his name was Asaph. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Asaph, but here's one thing we do know for sure. Asaph, because this is included here, wrote part of what Jews and Christians alike consider to be holy scripture. Asaph was a Bible author. How many of us can claim that? <laughs> How many of us ever even thought about doing that in life? Like, you know, you got life goals, you get a life coach. Like, I want to run a marathon. Today, I want to learn a new language. Today, I want to write some scripture, you know. <laughs> My point is this. Even the very best people, the very best spiritual leaders can sometimes doubt, what do we do with this? What should we do with this? What do we tend to do with this? Well, what we tend to do with this tends to fall, I think, along a couple of lines, culturally speaking. The first line is what I'll call the traditional religious conservative line, which is this. That is to be, basically be suspicious of doubt. Be suspicious of doubt, doubts in traditional religious circles. Maybe this was the kind of framework you grew up with, background you grew up in. Doubt is for the weak, and doubters aren't particularly welcomed. May not be a space for a bunch of hard questions in a place like that. On the other hand, what I'll call the secular liberal way is not to be mm, suspicious of doubt, but it's actually to sacralize doubt. That is to make doubt sacred, ultimate, supreme. The only real position in our modern secular liberal way of viewing doubt is to not only doubt everything, but to remain committed to doubt above everything. The, the honest, or the, I guess the best way, real way in this perspective, is to be ever seeking, but never finding. Ever seeking, never finding. But according to the Bible, we shouldn't be fundamentally suspicious of doubt, nor should we sacralize doubt, make it ultimate, but instead we should just be honest about our doubts and view them as an opportunity to grow spiritually. Let me give you three examples of this, three case studies. First of all, there's this guy, 
Asaph. Yeah, what do we read at the end of the psalm by Asaph? He writes this. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? Earth is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is like incredible. This is, these are words that have launched a thousand Christian worship songs right here. This is one of the most beautiful declarations of faith in all the Bible. But where did it begin? It began with a doubt Asaph experienced. Second, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples was, of course, named Thomas. He's known famously as Doubting Thomas, understandably so. But that was only where Thomas began. That wasn't where Thomas finished. After Jesus was resurrected uh, and all of Thomas's friends claimed that Jesus was alive again because they had seen him, Thomas is like, I doubt that. <laughs> he didn't believe. Why? Well, of course, resurrection is a little hard to believe in, but basically... He didn't believe because he missed the meeting. <laughs> he missed the meeting with Jesus, the other guy's God. It's always a reason, by the way, to never miss church. You never know what could happen. It preaches itself. Anyway, but Thomas, again, he doubts Jesus is alive. He says, unless I can see that sun shining through those holes in those hands, I'm not going to buy it. I'm out. So what does Jesus do? Does he, like, get real offended move away from Thomas? No. He makes a beeline toward him. He walks into the room. He says, Thomas, oh, listen, listen, put your hand in my side where I was speared. Put your hands in the holes where I was pierced. And then he tells him, yeah, he says, stop doubting and believe. Thomas, don't just search forever and never arrive. I understand. You've got good reasons for doubting. But he says, Thomas, I've got better reasons for believing. What does Thomas do? Then he falls to his knees, John chapter 20, and says, my Lord and my God. And commentators, Bible commentators, basically say that along with Peter's confession of faith over in Matthew 18, this is the most exalted declaration of faith, worship, confidence, adoration of any human being in the New Testament. See, like Asaph for Thomas, the peak of worship he climbed began in a valley of doubt. Therefore, I want to tell you, in one sense, Christianity should be known as the place where people can come with their doubts. Churches should be known as the place where doubters are welcomed. And let me give you one final reason for that. Third case study, Nathaniel. Another one of Jesus' early disciples, he, he's told by a friend named Philip that Jesus, he just might be the Messiah. He just might be the one that Israel's hoped in and hoped for. But Nathaniel, when he, of course, when he hears that, he says, I doubt it. But what did Philip say to Nathaniel in that moment? He didn't just give him the conservative, religious approach like, dude, you're an idiot for doubting. What do you mean? Nor did he just give him the secular liberal approach like, that's cool, man. Stay in your doubt forever. No, no, no. What did Philip say? He said to Nathaniel, the same thing I'll say to you today. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see if this Jesus isn't who he said he was. See if his claims of who he says he is aren't really true after all. Number one, who doubts? Sometimes even the very best people. But why? But why? Let's look at that number two. Here's why we contend towards doubt sometimes. Some of you, here we go, let's start like this. Some of you, maybe many of you, you've been to a gymnasium, to a rec center where there is this little medieval torture device called a treadmill that is available for you to sweat 
and run and stuff. And right now, this is total an off-road aside. This is for me, not you, by the way. Some of you may be like one of those characters on that sitcom Parks and Rec. Heard of Parks and Rec? Yes. Character's name on the show is Ann Perkins, and she's dating a guy named Chris. And Chris is a total health nut. Chris is totally health obsessed. He's always trying to you know, get her to take her vitamins. He eats super healthy. Chris is obsessed with fitness and running, and he tries to get Ann Perkins into it. And finally, Ann Perkins has had enough of Chris trying to get her into running and go to the gym. And she says, listen, Chris, I know running is good for you. I know it gets you in healthy. I know it gets you in shape. I know I'll feel better and I have more energy. I know running is good for me. But God, at what cost? <laughs> Some of you may feel like that. God, at what cost? And so if you're flinching at that word treadmill, again, once more, you're not alone. All right, not alone. But if you've ever run on a treadmill, you know this, this you pretty much got to look straight ahead or maybe just look down at the dials and buttons on the screen in front of you in order to stay on it. But have ever, any of you ever looked up while running? <laughs> looked off to the side while running? Look down, maybe look behind you if somebody calls your name. What happens if you do that? Well, two things. First of all, you'll become an instant TikTok video. <laughs> but if you don't look straight ahead, number two, Psalm 73, two happens. Asaph writes this, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. And what he's describing, by the way, right here, is especially bad because in the ancient world, to lose your footing meant you were dying. There's a reason why Paul tells Christians over in Ephesians 6, whole armor of God bit, to not slip, not lose their footing. He says, you do everything else, you make sure you stand. Don't slip, don't fall, don't lose your footing. Because if you lose your footing and you slip in battle, you'll die. So what's Asaph describing? He's describing the feeling of something like a spiritual death going on inside of him. What's been most central to him, his faith, his connection in God, he feels it slipping away. Why? Why do any of us ever doubt? Well, let me give you three reasons. Could be more. Just do three here. Three reasons why we can doubt. These are three levels, layers, strata of doubt. I'll call them intellectual reasons, sociological reasons, and emotional reasons, or more colloquially phrased, the slip, the science, and the screen. Here we go. Let's look at the slip. What I mean by that is intellectual reasons. That is, we can sometimes slip. We sometimes lose our footing for an honest intellectual reason. What was Asaph's? To sum it up in a phrase, it's extreme injustice. What Asaph termed in verse 3 as the prosperity of the wicked. The prosperity of the wicked. He says, God, the evil, prosper. They get away with it, good people suffer, and there's no justice. Yeah. And it makes me doubt you. Makes me doubt you, God. Now, that's an intellectually honest objection to the reality and existence of God. It's the problem of evil and suffering. And it is a problem for Christians, for those who are people of faith. But as we'll see in a moment, I hope to make my case, it's actually a far bigger problem for those who don't believe in God. We'll come back to that. But people can have intellectually honest objections to, to, for, to believe in God, and I respect those. I'll say that for sure. But I also want to tell you this. In more than 20 years of vocational ministry, I spent 12 of those on a college campus, on college campuses across the U.S. I found this. Most doubts people hang on to are really 5 to 10% in this category. 
truly, exclusively, intellectually honest objections. They're far more often something else, something deeper. Second, what I'll call also sociological reasons, or there's a scientific kind of reason. What I mean, what I mean is this, uh, the name Emile Durkheim, may have heard of Emile Durkheim, he was the father of something called the sociology of knowledge. I'm about to save some of you thousands of dollars in a college course for the next five minutes. But uh, this is a branch of scientific study he basically invented, which he said this. He said that we, you, you don't come to what you believe, what you believe for purely intellectual reasons alone. Like we think we're just brains, we're real rational people. He says we're not. <laughs> he says we far more often come to believe what we believe because of the people around us, the influences in our lives. Here's how that works. Let me give you this case study. He said, let's say you grew up with a strong faith in God. Okay, you grew up believing in God, a strong faith in some faith system. Then you went to a university or college campus. And all of a sudden, you found a whole lot of people and a lot of professors who openly mock God, ridicule God, make fun of faith in God. And someone may say to you, like, how can you actually believe in God? Like, Christians are a joke. Anyone who believes in God is a joke. And specifically, you may be asked, well, how can you be a Christian? Christians are total hypocrites. I mean, they hate those people. They hate that kind of person. They are the worst. And you should be ashamed to call yourself a Christian. I want to tell you, this happens every day on college campuses across the country. Now, after hearing all of this, maybe this was you, you were handed a book with objections about God or several books. And you read these, it starts to sink in. You don't necessarily go back and read the counter-objections, the counter-arguments to skepticism or atheism. You just now adopt a new belief of no belief in God. But if you are honest, you'll realize it had way less to do with what you read. It had as much or more to do with what you heard and what you felt. What people said and the natural desire we all had to fit in. And Durkheim, who was not a Christian, he was a secular Jew, said, you didn't really adopt that new belief in college on intellectual grounds. It was basically because you just wanted to fit in. You didn't want to have to go against the stream. You wanted to be liked by a group of people you thought were important. He said, we believe our doubts, not for intellectual reasons, but for sociological reasons, because we just want to be liked. A third reason we doubt, and this is the one that the psalmist here names in specific, by the way. A third reason we can doubt is because of not intellectual or sociological, because of emotional reasons, what I'll call the screen, the screen, like a video screen. What's this? All right. Um, maybe some of you have heard or been on repeatedly, by the way, the website Lonely Planet. It's a great travel website. Total escape at the end of your day. You'll look at all the places that you wish you were, right? <laughs> It's an online travel guide. Uh, Laura Mata, she's a woman who is the senior director of content there. She just wrote something that happened to her recently, which was this. Laura said she was out in public trying to meet people after being quarantined, socially distanced for a long time. And there was this guy there where she was that was, shall we say, very interesting to her hoping to get to know him, when a third person there in the room, uh, this total stranger came up to her, pretended like he knew her in order to show her a pretend text message on his phone, the point of which was to advise her under no circumstances to get into a conversation with the guy she was looking at. Like, avoid the guy at all costs. I know him. He's a bad dude. Don't talk to him. And she said she took the advice and she was grateful for it. 
But let's say, for the purposes of the sermon, she didn't listen. Instead, she stayed interested. And now, because uh, not now, not, not just a stranger, but all her friends noticed the situation, noticed she was sort of interested in this guy, and they came up to her and advised her the same thing, like, Laura, don't do it. Whatever you do, don't talk to him. Don't get in a conversation with him. Total jerk. He'll use you. Now, Laura would have all of that in her ears on audio. But then let's just say he turned around. Perfect smile, perfect teeth. Killer drip going on with the style. His muscles had muscles. The watch, the car, the job. It was like the incredible hunk appeared, you know, and so let's say she starts to cave. She starts to think, man, what could one teensy tiny little conversation with Mr. Incredible hurt? Now, what's happening? The screen is triumphing over the sound. The video in front of her is triumphing over the audio. What she's seeing with her eyes on the screen in front of her is winning over what she had heard with her ears. Appearances were winning over actuality. Why? Because she, again, in this fictitious scenario, she had an emotional reason to doubt her friends. She was simply feeling something that an appearance of something else provoked and brought out. And that's what Asaph is getting at. He said, I know what I heard about God. I know what I've been taught. I know what I've been told. It's been in my ear. But now I'm seeing something else. And because I'm feeling something else, he's about to let you know he's doubting God for an emotional reason as much or more than anything. What was it? Here it is, verse three. He says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, I almost lost my faith because I was jealous. I was jealous of the wealthy, the rich with no problems. I wanted a body like that. He says that in verse four. Their bodies are strong, look super good. You know, mine's not. I wanted a house like that. I wanted to live like them. He said, I wasn't so much offended by what they did. It was that I wanted to be able to live like them. So he had an emotional reason at the very bottom of his so-called intellectual reason. And then he goes on. He says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence. It's been pointless, God. All day long I've been afflicted. Every morning feels like 2020 over again. It brings new punishments, you know, every day. He acknowledges, really, God, I've only been serving you because I thought it was going to bring me something. I thought serving you was supposed to make me happier, but it's not richer, but it's not. I've been doing the right thing, but doing the right thing is only making me feel worse and I don't like it. Serving you ought to benefit me more. The real reason I'm doubting, and he's honest with it, is because of an emotional reason, right? In this case, envy. Now, that may not be you, if that's you or your thing and not be your emotional deal, but my, here's my question. Can we be that honest? Like Asaph, that at the bottom of whatever doubt we're feeling today is far more often something sociological or emotional than just purely intellectual reasons. Like this, maybe asking, where was God when? Like where was he when my daughter died, parent passed away? Why did she not make it? Why did they leave me? I prayed, I asked, it didn't happen. Why did they do that, say that about me? Can we be as honest as Asaph that most of our struggles are really more emotional than anything 
else. So what can we do with all this? What can we do with all this? What can be done? What can help us? Number three, what can help us in our doubts? Let's try to see. And if this is you today, if this is you, if you find your, your foot slipping, if you find yourself off balance, or you're straight up saying, man, I just believe in doubt, let me give you two ways here to possibly regain your footing and to find your balance. Number one, a guy by the name of Dr. Peter Berger. Peter Berger was a sociologist, a mentor of a mentor of mine. He was a skeptic for most of his life, and he wrote two books in particular that are enormously influential. First one was called The Sacred Canopy. Sacred Canopy. In it, he lays out why all religions are like they are, why he believes they are like they are, reasons why people believe what they believe. And he said this. He said, all religions are like this. All religions are is a desire to maintain their specific culture out into eternity. Like people love their culture. They want it to last. And so they invent rules, sacrifices. They construct this class of priests. They make traditions that not only bind their culture here and now, but help them last into eternity. And he pointed out, and he's right, if you look at how the afterlives of most religions are described, they look pretty much identical to how those people are living their life right here, right now. He said all religion is, is just like a big faith blanket over the top of a culture. It's like a, like a holy tent, like a sacred canopy. And then he said all cultures do this. Every single religion on earth is culturally rooted, he said, except for, and he's not a Christian here, he said, except for the historical peculiarity of Christianity. Because he's acknowledging, honestly, there was no one culture that produced the Christian faith. It literally sprang up overnight, comprised of people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different languages. And Berger, again, he's a skeptic, but now he began to think about two things. Number one, he began to ponder <laughs> that historical peculiarity. And second, he began to think about how the claim that all beliefs and truth claims are false, that they're all relative because they come from some culture, he thought about how that belief really couldn't be true because he realized that the claim that all beliefs are just the product of a culture, that itself is a belief. <laughs> you can't actually prove it. So that belief must itself be the product of a culture, and therefore the belief, the belief that all truth is relative, that must be false. And he realized, just like one culture over here produces a religion of faith, he said, he realized another culture, our Western culture, has produced a religion of doubt. We have taken what we believe in, which is nothing, and we've projected that into the future. The reason we don't believe in anything then is because we don't believe in anything now. We're just like them over here. Committed skepticism is just another religion. It's a religion of committed doubt. And when he realized that, he began to get free. In other words, Peter Berger doubted his doubts. It led him into Christian faith, and he wrote another book about that called A Rumor of Angels. <laughs> he followed the evidence. He doubted his doubts. What if you doubted your doubt? That God wasn't there, God wasn't fair, God didn't care, because you saw or felt some injustice somewhere. Now here's why doing that, doubting your doubts, will help you. Here's why. Follow me. 
Because while the problem of injustice and evil, that is a problem for people of faith, and it is. While it can cause your foot in faith to slip, I want to tell you, if you don't believe in God, you aren't just slipping. You actually have no place to stand at all. You have no foothold at all, and here's why. Because if there is no God, how can you be angry at him about injustice? Hmm? There's no one for you to be angry at. How can you be mad at someone who doesn't exist? You should just drop your outrage, but if you drop your outrage, then you drop your reason for not believing in God, which logically should lead you back to believing in God. See, if there is no God, here's the point. You don't have a place to stand when critiquing God about the issue of injustice. And that's what Asaph does here. He sees rightly that while his foothold, oh, it's a slippery one, he realizes that for those who don't believe in God, there's no place to stand at all. See, he doubted his doubts. But more than anything else, I want to encourage you to do what he did today, which was this, to enter the sanctuary. He doubted his doubts, but he entered the sanctuary and he writes this, verse 16, is where the psalm turns. He said, when I tried to understand all of this, injustice, evil, cosmic suffering, he said, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Now, listen, he's not just talking about a physical space that we would have entered one. No, he's talking about a place, a space where God's honored, God is worshiped. He walked in, he would have heard songs sung. He would have heard the preaching of God's word. He would have heard people praying. And by the way, if you're the similar place today, if you're doubting in some way, you ought to do the same. You're kind of doing it right now. You should, even if you're skeptical, you should start to pray. Like, God, I don't really know if I believe in you, but if you're there, would you reveal yourself to me? God, I know I've said I don't believe, but I want to know if you're really real. Please show yourself to me. Then sing some songs. Participate in worship. Go on a mission trip and serve some folks. Listen to the message like you're doing now. Why? It's only fair Because after all, again, you didn't get where you are, remember, by intellectual reasons alone. You got there by sociological reasons, emotional reasons as well. So give those a chance on the other side. Give a vibrant community and your emotions a chance to speak to you as well. Oh, but Asaph, he wouldn't have just heard people singing. He would have seen something else, a new screen for his mind. He would have seen this something at the very center of the sanctuary and Jewish worship. It would have been the sacrifice. The sacrifice. Asaph would have seen a spotless lamb be sacrificed and would have been reminded that something had to give its life so that he could live. See, the sacrifice was offered to remind people that in order to come close to God, that the problem of sin and selfishness and not just corporate injustice, but our personal injustices as well had to be dealt with. Something had to deal with all the ways in which we hurt others. We break the world. And he realized, I know I'm talking all this about the prosperity, the wicked injustice out there, but if I want the sword of justice to fall on others, I gotta let it fall on me first, see? And the same is true of us. If we want the sword of justice to fall out there, we gotta let it fall here first. Only if we did that, who could stand? Who could pass under that judgment? No one unless something or someone else went in our place. When Asaph entered the sanctuary, he saw that lamb bleed and he saw it die. It reminded him, God loves 
me. He's not done with me yet. God wants me to move closer to him right now and wants to move closer to me. That's what he saw and that sacrifice symbolized that truth. But I want to tell you today, we have something way better than anything Asaph ever got. We have something far better than what he saw. He got only a lamb to be offered once over and over again, an animal over and over again. But we have Jesus. The New Testament calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And today, if you look at Jesus, hear me, bleeding and dying for you and even all your doubts, if you'll see him and realize he suffered unjustly, God himself knows what it's like to perish while the wicked mock and wicked boast. If you'll know that Jesus, though he had kept his hands pure, his heart clean, he truly served God, only he got worse than nothing for it. He got the cross. If you realize he did it because he loves you and wants you to move closer to him and he moves closer to you. If you'll enter, hear me, the sanctuary, the holy place of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that'll change you. It'll move your heart. You'll get a new screen to look through, a new way of seeing the world. And then maybe, maybe you can feel what Asaph felt because what did he describe feeling? He described feeling the loving and gracious hand of God reaching out to hold his hand. He said, God, I know now that I see your sacrifice, I know you love me, though the world's gone crazy. He said, I know this, verse 23, you hold me. You hold me by my right hand. You're guiding me with your counsel. You'll take me to glory with you. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth's got nothing I want besides you. My flesh and my heart, it may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He's my portion forever. Put it like this. Let me tell you, church, our safest place is a sanctuary. Our greatest good is our holy God. Our strongest tower is the name of Jesus. And our truest home is here in his heart. But take a moment and pray for you as we begin to close. God, I thank you today that our safest place is your sanctuary. Our greatest good is our holy God. Our strongest tower is the name of Jesus and our truest home is here in your heart. Lord, I'm praying today with people from wherever they're coming from today, up, down, faith, doubt, we'd see once more something new for our, the screen of our minds. Lord, the truth that you hung and you bled and you died, you were raised for us. I thank you, like Asaph, you reached out to him. Thomas, you reached out to him. You pushed him away. You came closer. And for all of us here who are struggling with something today, I pray at minimum they would see and know that what they've just heard is your hand doing the same, reaching out to them in their difficult moment. I pray each of us would know we are welcome in your kingdom. Most of all, Jesus, I pray we'd know and experience your love for us. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.